Hello everybody and welcome to Brunvagoon, cycling made inclusive. Because we are all sick of this attitude in the cycling world of uh, too cool for school or cool kids on the back. We are all cool on a bike, that's why we need to share this feeling with everybody. Thanks a lot for listening, a lot. Thanks a lot for listening and thanks a lot to Komoot for supporting this season of the Brunwagen, the season number four. Remember, if you want to um, be part of the Komoot world just by checking out all the amazing things that you can get there or your navigation and discovering your path and planning your next trip, you can get an extra free region, extra an extra region on uh, just by going on komoot.com slash g like greenland and then write the code broom in this case you will unlock a new region and then you can unlock as well some amazing feature like turn-by-turn -turn navigation and offline maps that's super great and thanks a lot komoot for doing it then another thing that i want to mention is that you can share subscribe and rate and comment everywhere you want and listen of course uh, everywhere you want uh this broom wagon you can go to apple podcast google podcast spotify spreaker wherever and remember to share it with your friends and if you are commenting liking rating whatever you want to do you are also giving me a lot of support because we are climbing up all the uh, charts, so it's gonna be a bit more visible. This broom wagon, broom wagon usually is super visible, especially for the people that are on the back of the bunch, like I usually do. Other thing that I would love to mention yes, you can support this podcast as well going to the coffee page. The link is down below. Even just a coffee, it's a great support for me to cover some of the expenses, not all of them, but some of them, and also for giving me a good coffee that I can drink while I'm recording everything like that. And yes, that's it, I would say. Today we are going to talk about a super nerd and super cool episode. But before of that, I just want to mention a project that I'm super close to. We all know shift cycling culture. I talked about that all the time. I talked in the last newsletter as well. Well, they just launched a new um, Kickstarter campaign for supporting the uh, production. Is already, already is everything already uh, shot? But actually, just now. Um, the association needs a bit of support to produce the video itself and uh, distribute it all over the world. And uh, the name of it is Cracket Heart. Sorry, Cracket Earth. <laughs> Sorry, I was making also Cracket Heart, I would say, when we are talking about sustainable reasons. And a video on the impact of uh, climate change in all our world, especially as a cyclist. Go on shiftcyclingculture.com and support the kickstarter campaign it's going to be really great help whatever contribution you want to give and it's something that is really close to my heart earth heart as i was saying as well and actually remember as well that in the last weekend first and second of may 2021 uh, we all pulled carry on the um, clunkers ride edition of 2021 i made it one also here with peter and some friends here in uh, in zurich it was a lot of fun and if you want to check what we have done in zurich and all my crashes just go on my instagram account calamaro cc and you will find it out and anyways in all the channels of shift cycling culture you can also double check what happened in the other cities something like uh berlin was there Harlem was there in the us uh 
a lot of these initiatives were carried on and that's super great. Talk about the episode of today. Uh, Josh Portner, well known in the cycling world as the pinnacle, no, the most knowledgeable person about tire pressures and wheels in cycling. For this reason, I actually had to say thank you to John, John Woodruff and his two-tone Amsterdam to put us together to make this episode happen. And we talked about everything related to comfortable on the bike, tire pressure, different tiring system, all this thing. And it was long, it was fun, it was amazing. But I will let you judge that. Well, uh, I actually, I was talking with Josh uh, a couple of something like 10 minutes, 15 minutes before this recording. And I was telling Josh that today I want really to go nerd. That's why I'm super happy to have him here. And I will start, Josh, and sorry if I'm going to mess up with your surname, naming your name and surname. And you are, let me check because I want really to misspell it in a proper way. Today I have with me Josh Portner. Is it correct? You got it. Ah, that's awesome. You've got it. Yeah, because I make a mistake, make mistakes all the time, and probably better known as uh, Mister Marginal Gains, Mister Silka, the most knowledgeable person about tire pressure in Planet Earth. Can we um, appeal you in this way? What do you think, Josh? <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> that's what you I've been reading me. around. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I will say that actually we're going to go a bit nerd because I have a lot of super cool things that I've been reading and listening from you and about you. And we can really go nerd in some of my favorite topics. And at uh, the beginning, before asking you to give us a little intro about yourself, Josh, uh, I just want to say this time, thanks to John, John Woodruff, who put us in contact to make this episode working. So thanks, John. Starting from here, how are you doing, Josh? All good? I'm good. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's very fun. Yeah, where are you now? I can see an amazing uh, jersey. Uh, people, sorry, I'm super sorry that you cannot see that, but I can see behind <laughs> you an amazing jersey of the Bora. This should be the World Championship, Yeah. right? It's Peter Sagan, that one, right? Yes, I'm in my basement, uh, which is where my podcast studio is. Mm -hmm. And yes, I have a, I, I've been very fortunate in my career to work with some amazing athletes uh, over 20 years now. And I think at least a dozen world champions, Olympic medals, uh, Tour de France wins, you name it. So mm -hmm. I, we, I, I have amassed a bit of a jersey collection over the years due to, from, yeah. from my friends. So, but yeah. yeah, I've got a couple of Peter jerseys and uh, EF and, I've got a yellow jersey in the other room, and no, I've been I've been super fortunate. Okay, cool. Uh, who who's from the the yellow jersey? Uh, Carlos Sastra. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So who's one of one of my favorite uh, favorite athletes ever to work with? Not not a very technical person, not someone to nerd out, but uh, you know the kind of person that every every time I would be traveling or see him at the wind tunnel or see him at the tour, he would always come up and say, Josh. How are your children? Tell me about your children. He's just such it. a nice guy. I mean, and he remembered their names and, you know, and he just never wanted to like, ah, you know, we, we will do bikes for hours. Tell me about your family. 
He's just such a nice guy. That's super awesome. Yeah, humanity, right? Behind all these tech things and talking about writing, especially now at the moment, you talk about what's most of the time. I think that actually also uh, cyclists, pro cyclists, at least they are pretty obsessed with weights, not only of their bikes, but also about themselves or whatever. Having this kind of touch of humanity is always super good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, especially in my world, we're all tech all the time, right? Eat, sleep, <laughs> breathe technology. So it's uh, it, it's always nice to just turn off for a little, especially at, I think I spent four or five tours de France uh, embedded with teams. And, you know, a couple of weeks in, the last thing you want to think about is bike racing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It's, it's nice to just escape. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you were saying that actually uh, Carlos Sasta was not super tech then, was not into technology, was one of those riders that you have just to give them the bike and they would ride even a broom, as I say, from time to time, and they go fast with it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, he, I think he had a healthy skepticism. Uh, it took years to kind of convince him to try certain technology. And then as he did it, uh, I think especially, you know, you think of like the, the deep section wheels and the time trial and um, some of the aero positioning that we worked on, you know, he he could not have won that tour a few years prior because he just wasn't, uh, he didn't have his head in the right space to be comfortable on the bike. And, you know, that that tour win was, I think, in many ways, almost an accident. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, his attack on the Alpe d'Huez was really kind of meant to be a setup for the Schleck brothers uh, um, to counterattack. And then everybody stared at each other for I think 10 minutes. Um, and so all of a sudden he found himself in this position that even he didn't expect to be in. Um, but to be there in that moment and say, okay, Carlos, you've just got to hang on to this much time in the time trial. And we've done this and this, you know, you could take him through each step that we had worked on for years, um, to put the pieces together and he had confidence in it. And he went out and rode, you know, the time trial of his life. Yes. Yes. I can completely see the point. And, uh, yes, I remember it pretty clearly. Well, Josh, you were saying, you were talking about technology, being in a bunch of Tour de France, having in your basement a great collection of cycling jersey. Tell us more about you. So, yes. I'm not going to repeat again your surname because otherwise this time I'm going to mistake it. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's easy. You've got it. You've got it. Yeah. No. So I uh, fell in love with cycling, I think, in a, in a moment. I, I was at a friend's house uh, as a kid. And then the person's father got uh, the bicycling magazine and the cover of bicycling magazine that month was uh, Greg LeMond on that stunning Botechia Chronostrata time trial bike winning the 89 uh, Tour de France, right? The eight seconds over Fignon. And in that moment, I was just captivated by this bicycle. You know, I mean, this red with the crazy disc wheel and the, the colors and the, I mean, the whole thing was just, I thought, I, I want that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to be involved with this, you know? And, uh, and so I really came into cycling through the technology, the equipment. And then of course you start riding and then, uh, I was not bad at it. And so then you start racing and, and I can't say I ever loved racing, but it was, it was enjoyable and it became that thing that I did. <laughs> and so I went fairly, you know, U S uh, national team. I spent two seasons in, in Europe, uh, racing for French teams, um, and was okay at it. You know, not, not, not good enough to stay. I always say I was, I was good enough to, to go and not good enough to stay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> and, okay. And so I, you know, came back, um, uh, mid nineties, went to engineering school, studied, uh, aerospace, automotive engineering 
uh, have a real passion for material science. And so I think all of those things combined uh, led me into auto racing. So I spent some time uh, doing automotive engineering, vehicle dynamics, chassis uh, setups, suspension setups for uh, Le Mans prototype uh, cars. And then just as luck would have it, um, the company Zip, which was about 10 years old at the time, had gone into uh, bankruptcy uh, or was about to slide into bankruptcy uh, following the sort of bike bust of the late 90s. You know, uh, people in the industry know it quite well, but, you know, mountain bikes boomed and the industry was really going gangbusters. And then in the late 90s, 97, 98, the bottom fell out and okay. uh, a bunch of companies went out of business. And uh, Zip had, you know, invented the carbon wheel, that sort of crazy beam bike uh, thing. And the founder of the company was a ex-Formula One engineer who had come to the U.S. to work in IndyCar. And so he'd started this uh, company almost on accident, but really wasn't a cyclist, didn't care about it. And uh, and so it was bought by a, a guy named Andy Ording, a South African. And as luck would have it, he moved the company next door to where I was working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in a moment of frustration, you know, we we meet in the parking lot one day and and uh, I said, oh, Zip, I've, I remember that name. I've, I used to race bikes. And he was looking for an engineer and uh, – yeah, the rest was history. We we had a great, almost fifteen year run uh, with with Zip, building that company. You know, uh, I mean, first super integrated carbon aero bars and carbon cranks, and we made a bunch of stuff for Campagnolo for years. I mean, we really we we had a heck of a ride with that uh, that company. And two thousand eight sold the business to SRAM, yeah. uh, and then I continued to kind of stay on and do advanced technology development uh, type stuff with SRAM and ZIP uh, both. So through that was, you know, involved with uh, a lot of the stuff you see now, electronic shifting, um, the sawtooth wavy wheels, you know, that was kind of happening just as I was leaving. Um, yeah. So it's, it was a great run. You know, we had a, a lot of fun and then Silka popped up and I was looking for something to do in 2014. We bought the Silka brand and started it over again <laughs> yes tell me more about this journey because it's pretty clear actually you started working with zip and it's super fascinating as as you are saying actually all the technology that was born into zip you were mentioning carbon wheels and also now that you're talking about electronic shifting or whatever it's super fascinating but yeah at a certain point everything moved on you decided to go for silka how actually everything was putting in the right place in order for you to take over this, I would say, pretty historical, well-known. It's Silka seems like it's there forever, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was hundred turned 100 years old uh, a few years back. So it was f- formed or founded in 1917. Uh, had, had been in the same family for three generations. And I knew the owner. Uh, because we bought the little disc adapters, you know, the little things we call the crack pipe. <laughs> uh, we, we bought from them to inflate the disc wheels. And uh, we had done business for many years. And yeah, I got a, an email from him saying that he was dying of cancer and the company was uh, in receivership in Italy in terrible financial condition. And he had been trying to sell it for a few months and no one was interested. And I think, you know, I probably like everyone else thought, oh, you know, who? who would buy a, a bankrupt Italian pump company? It just sounds like a terrible idea. Um, but, you know, getting off the phone and 
laying in bed for maybe a week <laughs> thinking about it, thinking, ooh, why doesn't somebody make a, a, a better, you know, pump chuck, <laughs> right? Why can't we make valve extenders that don't leak, <laughs> right? What? Man, don't Tubeless tell me. is coming, you know. Yes. <laughs> we are going to talk about valves extension that leak because I have a couple of questions about that to you. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, no, and, you know, as I lay there thinking about um, about all of that, it, it really hit me. You know, I had, we developed the first carbon wheels to win at Roubaix um, with Fabian Cancellara. It was a three-year project, and really the secret to that project was tire pressure. Um, we had all this tire pressure data collected um, more than anyone else really in the world. And, you know, I had been building custom gauges, and, you know, we knew that the pumps that the teams would get from the traditional brands, the gauges are crap, and they they never read accurately. So we, uh, you know, would, were putting custom expensive gauges on these pumps, and I thought, oh, you know, I've, in a way, I've kind of been training for this for years <laughs> why don't we just make a product for the consumer that's what we've been making quietly for the pro teams you know and i, I knew zip and, and would never make that product and uh i knew also that i think you know at zip we would we were never going to release that information to the world uh in the way maybe i wanted it it to go so by by leaving and starting something new i could design you know that the other side of that coin the tech is great, but you know, you think of 15 years of wheels and handlebars, it's the same, it's the same thing over and over again. You know, it it was fun. We had a great time, but it's, you know, yeah, go quote unquote reinvent the wheel for the 15th time. You know, yes, that absolutely <laughs> it, makes it, sense. It gets, yeah, <laughs> it gets a little bit old, right? Um, so I was looking for new challenges and uh, but I saw that opportunity there of like, oh, we could just make th- these things better and the only barrier to entry there was a little, was cost, right? I mean, at the time, two Chinese companies made all the pumps for the world uh, except for Silka. And there were, like, I think, one or two models of SKS uh, in Germany. Every other pump uh, in the world market, no matter what the brand, came from two Chinese companies. Uh, and so it felt like, okay, nobody's going to make this better, <laughs> right? There, there's no... There's no need for them to improve this product. There's no need for them to put a, you know, a hundred and fifty dollar gauge on a fifty dollar pump. Uh, you know, that's not going to exist. But we could do it. We could make it in America, make it our way. And I, th- I really believe deep down there would be a market for that. And and as luck would have it, there was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to go just one second into that. So you really think that actually the, the step up actually of the game. In the pumps, I mean, was just changing this wage and making something a bit more accurate, right? So something that was a bit more concrete on which one was the pressure on the tires, or there was something else that stepped up into the game of the pumps. Oh, I think there's a lot to step up in the game of the pumps. The the biggest one, in a way, was taking everything backwards a step. You know, the the secret to this very low cost Chinese manufacturing is the sharing of components. And to get the prices very low, those components end up being plastic, right? So you, you know, you have an injection molding tool for the pump, the piston, the thing that, you know, is pushing the air. Well, maybe somebody spent $20,000 to make that tool, but now you're making 5 million pumps a year with that same plastic piston that costs a penny. The problem with plastic in a pump piston is that as you, go to higher pressures, the air gets hot 
and the piston is impacting at the bottom of the stroke each time. And so when you, you talk to a bike shop, they say, Oh, you know, we, we are, we fail our pumps every six to nine months because the pistons shatter, Mm -hmm. right? Well, why do the pistons shatter? Because they're plastic. Why are they plastic? Because it costs a penny. Well, what's the answer? The answer is to make one out of metal. (laughs) Well, like they did in the old days, you know, well, the, the downside of metal is, um, that, you know, it, you don't want it scratching the side of the cylinder. Well, now we need to put a glide ring on it. And you look at the, uh, the, the piston in a Silka pump today is actually the piston design from a, uh, mountain bike, uh, suspension fork. Oh. Uh, we use the same glide rings from the German company, Igus, uh, really this, the same design of the piston. And yes, now it, it doesn't cost a penny. It costs, you know, $8 or something to make this part. But this part will literally last forever. A hundred years from now, that part will still be there functioning um, because it's metal with with this engineered plastic uh, anti-slip glide ring surface. So, you know, it's it's just the little details like that. You know, why make things in plastic uh, when we could make them out of something much more robust? But of course, you know, then you hit the market with that product and it is more, it, it, it cannot cost the same. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. But actually, this is something that is always it always has been in your USPs. I think getting stuff that costs more, but they are also apart from being more precise and everything, but also that lasts forever. We can say that, especially yeah. talking about the pumps, right? Yeah, I have, absolutely. I mean, I, it seems crazy to me that we we buy these cheap things to throw them away every few years. Yeah. Um, and, and in the case of the pro teams and the bike shops, it's months. Right, they will. A typical pro team will will go through something like sixty pumps in a season uh, because they break. Okay, Um, you know, you think you've got three or four cars, you've got the service course, and you're pumping all the tires every day. Um, It's a lot of activity for the pumps, and they just break them and throw them out and replace them. Uh, Bike shops do the same, and it just seemed crazy to me that you know uh, I had a Silka pump from 1990 that still works you know we, we use it wow. every day and and you you know i have friends with silka pumps from the 70s that still get use every day and so when we we bought the brand the company was gone we bought the brand and we started from scratch but i really was committed up front to say okay i'm going to continue making all of the replacement parts for the old pumps and then we're going to make those in modern engineered materials and then we're going to design all of the new pumps to use those same parts and so, you know, a check valve is a, a common failure part in a in a cheap pump, and the Silka pump uses a, a four thousand psi capable brass check valve pin made in Italy by the same manufacturer since nineteen forty seven. Um, and so, we've just designed all the new pumps to use the same part from the same vendor. And so, you could take there's probably a dozen parts you could take out of a new Silka pump and use it to rebuild an old Silka pump, uh, and vice versa. So they, they will, most of the parts will last forever and the parts that don't are easily replaced and easily available at low cost. Yeah. I was having exactly this conversation in, yeah, I can put it in this way. And for people that are listening in the episode that went live last week, for us that we're recording today, for the episode that went live today, making things that actually last longer, but they are also easy to repair. That's the way, because we're all the time, I don't want to get so much into this conversation because we want to go nerd in something else, but we are also always talking about 
recyclable parts or recycled parts. And this is okay. It's great. Don't get me wrong. Making things from recycled plastic is super interesting and making things recyclable is super interesting. But the only way not to waste all the environment is making things that can be repaired instead of replacing them all the time. Uh, something like buying and selling stuff every year that they're going to break and you need to replace them the year after, for sure it's not sustainable. It's way more sustainable but putting into the market something solid and repairable. That's the way, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a big part of our vision is you know why we, we call it uh, less but better. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I, I want to sell you one thing every you know 30 years. Right. Instead of when and and it's funny I, when we first started uh, within the industry, there was a lot of uh, skepticism about the model. People would say, "How you know you you can't make a pump that lasts thirty years? You know you need to sell a pump every three years to that customer." Ah, that's not. We'll come up with other products to sell to people. You know that's. Uh, I I don't need to sell you a pump every three years. I I that's not part of the vision. And you know we we had a belief that the market would decide and, you know, people would either be willing to pay more for something that's better or they weren't. And here we are, what, six years later, and uh, the market has shown that they very clearly are willing to pay a little bit more for something that's much better. Absolutely. It's something that you are keeping to yourself. And then if your son or your grandchildren or whoever uh, will actually want to have cycling in their life, well, they can keep it forever and ever. If something gets broken, actually, it's there. It's, not, it's still a tool, but it's something that lasts for really long. It's not one of these tools that you can break every year and get a new one. No, it's something that you know is going to be precise for a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny, too. We're the one brand, like if you get onto eBay or one of these secondary markets, old Silka pumps sell for ridiculous amounts of money yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> it's the other piece of that equation like you you cannot find another brand of pump with 20 and 30 year old ones for sale because they're all probably broken but you know uh we had we just got the brand so i had no uh we had no vintage pumps when we started other than mine from 1990 and so i i started trying to build a pump museum and and i find myself getting in there and thinking you know, a good 70s Silka pump can be like $250, wow. <laughs> so Like That's crazy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I buy it anyway because I want it for my museum. Um, but yeah, even the 80s and 90s Silka pumps will sell for $100. Um, you know, and, and, and people, I think beyond that, as you said, people are attached to them. You know, I think that's some of the my favorite customer interactions um, are through our, our helpline. You know, we have a, a a policy where, uh, you know, a human being answers the phone during business hours, right? I, I'm not going to put you in some silly phone tree, you know, press one to do this and press two, like a person answers the phone. And sometimes that's me. Uh, but people will call us looking for a part for their old pump. And, and inevitably they, they just start telling these stories, you know, Oh, I had this pump when I was in, you know, so-and-so I went, took it on a tour in 1983. And that's where I met my wife. And, you know, they just have these great stories, and you realize the pump is is so much more to them than just a pump, right? That's it, it. I don't know. It has all of this other life connected to it, uh, it and that's why people want to keep them going. I, I think as much as anything else. 
Yeah. That's fun. That's a special feeling. Yes, no, that's super great. And if I can actually go just a little bit philosophical on that, it's something like philosophy or consumism, I would call it in this way. The point is that once when I was a kid, for example, but not so much ago, so I'm turning 40 in a couple of weeks, but already if we're, I'm talking about 20 years ago, so in my, when I was in my 20s or whatever, people were keeping their bicycles forever. I mean, everybody was used to have a steel frame and then I have still a super old steel frame that is for the end of the 70s and I use it anyways. And I remember that my dad was used to have his bicycle when I was a kid and when I was actually a kid and he was already in his 40, 45, he was riding his bike. It's something that you were keeping forever. And it's the same thing with the pump because it's something that works. You just need a bit of maintenance and then you can keep it forever. Now it seems like it's something like fashion we can put it in this way without anything else to say into fashion but that's what it is you just want the new color of the bike okay i bought it three years ago okay i'm gonna get a new one it's a tool that's what i mean yeah. keep it uh, maintain <laughs> yeah. it and you can use it for a lot of time right yeah for sure for sure no it's it people are always surprised i only i only own and ride old bicycles <laughs> okay all is still for you maybe something titanium yeah so i i have a uh 91 Eddie Merckx MX Leader uh, in the Multini scheme, one of the few that were were done like that, uh, that I love, and actually just completed with help of a, a friend of mine, a uh, 1990 uh, Team Z TVT, the, the Greg LeMond tour winning yeah. uh, bike of night. So I, I like to joke, see, I do own a carbon bike. <laughs> it just happens to be really old. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, but there is just, there's, there's a lot of, I, I don't, care to go fast i i'm way past that point in my life and i do like the look and the nostalgia of the old bikes and you know it's it's something you can have a lot of a lot of fun with and um you know and two they they hold their value well so i you can buy one ride it for a couple years and sell it for exactly what you bought it for maybe more to buy it to buy the next one to change the color right and you're not you're, you're not introducing any new uh you know energy use or, or trash into the world <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely i just want to talk another second about and then we are going to step into the the nerd conversation also about the power the pump so you were we were talking about the durability of the pump how cool it is how long it can last and everything like this but do you think that actually a good pump a good quality pump would actually also keep the um, the status and so keep a bit more for longer time also, everything else that is used on, so I mean something like tubes, if you use tube, the valves, if you're using the wheels themselves, do you think that a good pump also has an influence on everything else or we, you oh, would yeah. not go up there? No, I, I would certainly go there. I think um, when we first approached the, the pump as a tool, one of the things that hit me was, you know, we we're all willing to spend a lot of money on fancy specialty tools that are used infrequently, right? You know, a good headset press is hundreds of dollars and, and you use it every two years, you know, or a derailleur hanger alignment tool can be hundred plus $200. You use it almost never. And, and then we cheap out on the pump, which ideally is the tool that you should be using every single day. Right, and I I call this the the living room furniture problem. Uh, after my mother, who would insist on buying this fancy, like usually white or light in color furniture for the living room of our house, 
And then you were never allowed to go in there. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right? My mom is the same. And, and then every like every 10 years, she would decide that it was time for a change of decor. And it was time for that furniture to go. And you would look at it and say, it's it's brand we spent all this money on it and now you're getting rid of it and it's brand new. And I was never even allowed to sit on it, right? And yet, you know, the family room furniture you live with every day, right? You're sitting on it every day. And of course, we totally cheap out on that furniture. Of course. You know, the arm is falling off the sofa and the whole thing. So so I think the vision for me with the pump was to build a tool that you wanted to use every day. Um a tool that was high accuracy, high precision, um, a tool that would further connect you to not just the bicycle, but also the ride that you're doing, um, that would be easy on the valves, those things. But but you think about, you know, the air pressure is the most critical aspect of bicycle maintenance. It controls ride quality. It controls traction, right? It, it controls, you know, comfort, um, speed. Right. And and as we know, and if you, you've seen the tire pressure calculator that we've uh, kind of released to the world free based on all of our pro data, you know, the, the tire pressure should change depending on the surface you're riding on. So you should be thinking about that critically every day. You know, I, I, I can't count how many times people have said, oh, you know, I I'm going to buy the, you know, this new carbon frame because it's it's more comfortable and and I have back issues. And you think, you know, the the difference in stiffness between frames is is a fraction of a percent, right? And I can change the, the comfort of your bicycle by 20 times that much with a slight tire pressure change, right? And and yet, you know, if you roll out of the house and you're 8 PSI low on your tires, nobody ever says, oh my God, this bike is so comfortable. But if we, if we take it and we measure it, the bike is significantly more comfortable. Um, you know, we had the same thing uh, I, I talk about with our, our Roubaix testing with the pro teams. You know, the, the specialized tarmac and the specialized Roubaix were looked at as these two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? The, the tarmac was so stiff that you couldn't possibly ride it at Roubaix and the Roubaix was so comfortable that it was the only bike you could ride at Roubaix. And we put them in the test machine and we measure them for stiffness. And the difference in the frames on the system stiffness was the equivalent of four PSI. That's nothing. I mean, that's that's nothing, you know. And and then you think that the the gauge that comes with your pump is probably plus or minus five PSI of accuracy uh, when you buy it and then it drifts over time and you're probably not inflating your tires in each ride. I mean, you have the power to dramatically change the ride quality of your bicycle every single day for free. Yes. If you just take the two minutes to adjust your tire pressure. And I think that's the the part of the vision that got me really excited, um, especially as I see what's happening with bicycles right now, right? This disc brakes have really allowed us to get to a spot where you have maybe one bike with three wheel sets or two wheel sets with different tires. And now you can make that one bicycle do a whole bunch of different things on a whole bunch of different surfaces. And if you're paying attention to your tire pressure, you can, you can broaden that, uh, the, the quiver, right? You, you can broaden the range of use uh, of the bicycle e- even further. And again, at, for no cost, <laughs> you yes. just have to pay a little bit of attention. No, yeah, absolutely. Sorry if I was actually a bit distracted, but I was really going into a kind of a scale because I need to put myself into uh, the PSI mode while I am kind of <laughs> one of these old 
person <laughs> that usually goes with here you go with bars that's uh, just yeah uh, sorry I, I can work in bar as well but no 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 let's go in PSI no, everybody no. talks in PSI now so yeah. I'm the old one it's, so it's funny we all of our proteins we've converted to PSI and it's because it's a smaller unit it it just makes things a little bit easier you know you don't uh I can talk in half PSI and I don't have to talk about 0.05 bar. <laughs> it's absolutely right? what I was it's thinking. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because you can really change. Before, for example, you were talking about 4 PSI, the difference between a tarmac and a Roubaix, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, with bars would have been a bit more complicated. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I was actually putting here myself. I have two things in front of me. Actually, there is the third one there. But I have the Silka Professional Pressure Calculator that we are going to talk into that via this conversation that I'm going to start. And I have actually a conversion chart from PSI and bars. So let's go into that. Okay. The word of wheels, anyways, of bicycles changed dramatically dramatically and i would say four years ago uh five years ago anyways with the introduction of a bit more clearance for uh the tires because everybody of us knows that actually is not anymore a problem to put a bit chubbier tires and have a bit more of comfortable and as well, introduction of a couple of things that are really important. The first of these is actually disc brakes, right? And mm -hmm. I would love actually, and here we can actually introduce another concept that is everybody now has to have, really must have, a gravel bike. Even if we can talk about Tom Ritchie, that every bike is a gravel bike, we can put also <laughs> this one into the conversation. Because as we yeah. are going to say, it depends on the pressure of the tires, right? But... Putting together disc brakes, bit more clearance, and the necessity of going off-road. All my childhood, especially when I moved to Berlin, because there is an amazing uh, brand, I would say, team that is called 8Bar. Uh, everybody was telling me, you need to carry a lot of pressures into your tires, because in this way, you're going to go, first of all, faster, then because the tires is the tires pretty slim you can actually in this way keep the perfect rolling resistance or as less as you can yep. and so eight bars because of being fast being aerodynamic and less rolling resistance and another thing that I actually was listening to I've done the Eroica three times and I was having by them a 23 millimeters tire and everybody was telling me, somebody was telling me, put a bit less pressure because you're going to be more comfortable. But on the other side, if you push a bit more of pressure there inside, you're going to have less problems with punctures and stuff. Well, arrived to this point in life where the, I think, skinniest, yeah, the skinniest tire that you can have on your bike now, if you get a new one, is 25, probably millimeters. And yep. considering as well the introduction, the thing that we talked about, what do you think for, and let's start from here, a normal road bike is the most beneficial pressure that you can get into the tire and with which benefits? Oh gosh. So loaded question. Um, you really have to consult the calculator <laughs> because it depends. So the, the key factors are the tire width mm -hmm. um, and not, not what it says on the sidewall, but the actual measured width. So I need to um, bring with me a caliper. So I will see. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So a caliper helps. Uh, we're actually working on a, a chart of this tire on that rim sort of fitments to help people. But the industry has has fallen very behind 
on its standards. And in a lot of cases, people aren't using standards. So the tire says 25, but it might it might measure 29. I mean, it, and that's a huge difference. So it's the the actual width of the tire uh, as inflated is the first thing to think about. And, and there's there's two things uh, at work here. There's the the radius of the tire uh, or the diameter of the tire or of of the cross section. If you think about it, there's a thing called uh, casing tension, and that is the bigger the casing, the more tension in that casing at the same pressure. Okay. Yes. Right? So that's one thing you're working. So, so one of the things that surprises people sometimes is like if you take, you know, say a given pressure eight bar, and the tire gets bigger, that tire actually becomes much less comfortable because it's much stiffer at that same pressure. You know, a thirty millimeter tire at eight bar is much stiffer than a 23 at eight bar. Um, and that's, that's driven by this casing tension. Now, the other thing you're buying with tire width is height. I think that's the one thing people aren't always thinking about, but you know, every, every couple millimeters wider, the tire is getting taller and that's just more distance between you and that, that rock that's <laughs> going to damage your rim, right. Or, or whatever. And so that is uh, a key that we, I think doesn't always get thought of in terms of um, pinch flat resistance and damage tolerance that, you know, Hey, what's the, what's the biggest thing you're going to hit? You need your tire to be at least that tall. Okay. Yes. <laughs> right. So you can absorb uh, th that hit. So we look at, so that's width, then your weight, right? So you think the tire is basically a spring mm -hmm. and a spring has, you know, so much compression, uh, you know, millimeters of compression per force, right? Well, your weight is the thing that's going to be driving the force part of that equation. Um, and then your weight is distributed front and rear, right? Depending on how you sit on your bike, it might be 60% rear, 40% front. It might be 50% rear and front, right? So we have to think about that balance. Um, then we think about the terrain. And the key with the terrain is that the smoother the terrain, the more the rolling resistance is driven by the flex of the casing of the tire, what we call hysteresis uh, losses, right? So that's that's what people have been trying to get away from forever with high pressure, right? So, oh, higher pressure, the tire deflects less, that's fewer losses. Now, we know because we discovered uh, at Silka and then published it first that there's, there is a break point um, where the rolling resistance goes from just being about the hysteresis of the casing of the tire to what we call impedance losses. And those are the best way to think about that is if your tire were perfectly rigid, or if you've ever done uh, like inline skating, right? You, you know, it, it doesn't take much of a bump for an inline skate wheel to stop, right? So if you hit something like a rough road with that inline skate, you are physically having to lift the wheel up and over every bump, right? So if I made your bicycle tire as rigid as an inline skate wheel and you hit a five millimeter bump in the road, the entire bike and rider has to be lifted up five millimeters and fall off the other side. Um, and also it, that's not efficient, right? Having thinking of your, your system as being lifted. It's like, you know, I say the road is doing a little uh, bench press of your entire body weight, thousands of times per minute, <laughs> right? <laughs> Every bump is lifting you. Um, but in that also is, is that there are hysteresis losses in humans, right? We are not efficient creatures to be shaken. Um, and also we have inefficient contact points with the bicycle. So, you know, this is part of how you get, uh, 
blisters and heating of your hands on rough surfaces, right? That's because there's a very inefficient contact point between the hand and the the handlebar, right? Or between your butt and the seat or between your, you know, your feet and your shoe. Um, and it turns out that those losses are much greater actually, or much less efficient than the tire casing of a good tire. And so, you know, if you think of the, the graph of rolling resistance looks a little bit like a V and it's shallower on the lower pressure side and it's steeper on the higher pressure side. So, so what our calculator is doing is it, it's taking about 4,000 real world optimizations that we've done over the last 10 years for mostly with pros, pro triathletes, uh, a lot of gravel racing in there. Um, a lot of, you know, I think six Paris-Roubaix victories uh, worth of data are in that data set. And what it's trying to do is find that peak minimum of the V, right? And saying, for this surface, your weight, your tire, um, this is your most likely, you know, kind of peak minimum rolling resistance. And then the guidance we give to you past that is it's always better to err on the side of lower than higher because of this asymmetry and efficiency, right? Five couple of five PSI too low is much better than five PSI too high. Yes. Right. And then the last thing that it's doing is it's doing a big energy calculation to say, okay, I'm going to assume you're, you're giving it an idea of how fast you're riding and it knows your body weight and your tire size. And so then it's doing a little energy model of you hitting, um, essentially the, like a small curb. Okay. <laughs> And it's using that to say, what are the likelihoods of you pinch flatting or breaking a rim for this tire size? And so it actually will throw a flag and say, you know, if you say, I want to ride 23 millimeter tires on Paris-Roubaix cobbles and I weigh 100 kilograms, it's going to throw a flag and say, whoa, that tire is way too small <laughs> for what you're trying to do. Um, and so you're either going to have to, it'll give you an indication of, you know, you're going to either need to raise the pressure to this to prevent pinch flatting. Mm -hmm. And you're going to go slower or you're going to need to get a bigger tire. Okay, okay, okay. So actually, we would say that into the calculator, we are going to find all the answer calculated on the model that you just described to us, basically. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It makes a lot of sense because here, actually, we are introducing so many other variables that, and that's super interesting, uh, that the ones that actually we always had in mind, that it means, for example, I always calculated my pressure just by thinking... This is my weight together with the bike, and this is the the width of my the nominal width of my tires. And then from there you move on. But actually not. There are so many other things, and especially the um, the gravel part. Of course, uh, the gravel. I mean the surface part. Um, another thing that actually that's a conversation. Let's go in this side. A conversation that I'm having so often lately, and because. Going into the direction of uh, uh, what's inside your wheel and what's around your wheel. And I'm talking about tubeless versus tubes. Now seems like there is this kind of dichotomy right, right there that people say, ah, if you want to ride less pressure, be more comfortable and never have a flat or a pinch flat, then you have to go on tubeless. On the other side, it's easier to change a tube but uh, so for this reason you can use it but you are actually getting all the um, good parts that i just mentioned you're not gonna have them anymore so you can have flats is a bit more pro problem yeah there are more possibilities on doing that and uh, you have more rolling resistance and this and that how true 
is that, in your opinion, Josh? Gosh, that that gets complicated, uh, as, as we joke on my podcast. Oh, of that, course. That's in the category of it depends, <laughs> <laughs> as we say it. And uh, so it, it really depends on what, what brand, what model um, of tire you're talking about, right? It, it, you can really get into the, the nuance here, but the, we are just now in the past year, we are, we're at a place finally where the fastest tubeless tires are as fast or nearly as fast as the fastest tube tires when paired with latex inner tubes. Um, that being the, the, the real key, right? A latex inner tube can save, you know, three to five watts per wheel over butyl. Um, so the, the latex is the key, but then really it's down to that model of tire. You know, you, you could say, uh, if you throw a couple of tires at me, we can look at the data sets and say, which one is, is faster or slower. Um, but it's hard to paint with broad strokes here because there are a lot of tubeless tires okay. that are terribly inefficient and slow. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you might say, oh, I, I'm, I want to ride lower pressures with greater efficiency and I'm going to install this tire. And I would say, oh, no, that's, that is not a good choice. Um, and so you really need to look at the, the specific model uh, and, and brand um, for what you're doing. There, there's a great site out there, uh, bicyclerollingresistance.com. He does, uh, they're just roller tests, so they're not finding the impedance side of the equation. Um, he is just looking at casing losses by tire and brand, very simple test. Um, and then kind of just stack ranking where the tires are. And, and that's, that's been a great thing for our industry the last few years, cause it's really started to hold the tire manufacturers accountable for what they're putting out there, you know, for, for early in the tubeless days, a lot of the tire manufacturers were just blanket stating these are faster. And we, we would get them, you know, especially with our, like the teams that we work with, they would say, oh, these are the new tires this year. And, you know, I, there were years we've tested tires for teams. And said, Guys, they these can are, be better. <laughs> these are terrible. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, these are terrible. Um, and, and so, you know, I think his site, uh, his site is great for just helping to get an idea of that. And then, you know, within uh, each type of tire, you have some decisions to make, you know, the fastest rolling tires of all types are just going to be more, uh, prone to punctures, right? Because the thing that makes the tire faster is less rubber, right? Thinner. Um, you know, the hysteresis inside the tire, as you think of there's, you know, like hundreds of thousands of fibers, right? It's, it's like a fabric that's been soaked in a rubber. And then you have the tread rubber. Some of them have, um, breaker strips for puncture resistance. Well, each time you have a, a thing touching another thing, you've got a hysteresis uh, point within the tire, right? And so how do the fastest tires get fast? Well, they have the fewest plies of casing with the thinnest threads, with the least amount of rubber, right? With the least amount of tread. All of that takes you in a place of like, oh, that that's now a tire that's pretty easy for something to go through because there's just less tire there. Um, so having said all that, you know, if my answer is quite different, if you say I'm, I'm doing a Royica, uh, you know, what should I be on? You know, that's probably one set of things to think about. If you're one of our, our pro tour teams coming in and saying, you know, Hey, I, we want to look at the, you know, stage X time trial at the tour de France this year. Um, and the, the pavement looks like this. We're probably making a pretty, 
a pretty different uh, decision. I I will say I think the one for me the one X factor here um, going forward are going to be the these liners foam liners. I know we we worked a lot with uh, Vittoria and the EF team over the last two years using these liners and um, actually won Flanders on a tubeless uh, racing incredibly fast Vittoria tubeless racing tire with a foam liner um, that. Unlike mountain bike foam liners, is designed to shrink under the air pressure in the tire so that it's not touching the sidewall, and that's that's a big efficiency problem with the mountain bike tire liners. Um, and so this thing shrinks up, and then if you flat, it expands uh, because suddenly there's a loss of air pressure. And very cool technology, and I think I think that's going to be the technology that's really going to allow tubeless to become much more mainstream uh in road than it is today yeah sorry i am pretty ignorant on that when you talk about liner what are we talking about i really don't know so it's like a it's like a foam ring that goes inside the tire inside the tire ah so one of those things it's, okay okay yeah one of those things but which are quite common in mountain bike right they're typically like a kind of a rectangular cross section and they're there as much to keep the rim from breaking when you bottom out um the one they've come up with for road it has sort of a hexagonal cross section and it fits, it fits uh, down in the well of the clincher, okay, uh, or of the rim, and it's big enough that you can ride on it flat. But it's a closed cell foam, so that when you pump air into the tire, the air pressure in the tire makes this liner shrink, okay, quite small. Uh huh. And so the liner compresses down to kind of this tiny little thing, as long as there's air pressure in the tire, and then as soon as you flat it expands and takes up the space. And that's super important because the putting something in the tire that touches the sidewall is just adding more hysteresis and more rolling resistance. Um, and so really up until this technology came about the last two years, you know, you just, it, it wasn't worth using something like that in pro racing because it, it, you say, Oh, we're saving two Watts with this tire. Oh, and then we're adding three Watts with this thing that we're putting in, in there in case we, yes. flat. Uh, that doesn't work so well. Okay. No, it but, makes, uh, yeah. 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 So the, it's, I, I, I think there's this slow march towards commercial tubeless in road and gravel. I mean, we, the future is very clear, right? 10 years from now, it will all be tubeless. Um, but at the moment, you know, I still have probably half my pro teams and uh, I would say probably half my professional triathletes racing on, uh, very fast clincher tires with latex inner tubes because it's quite safe. Um, it's easy. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's still a lot easier than some of these tubeless solutions. Uh, and it can be extremely fast. And in some cases it, it can be the fastest solution, um, uh, depending on road surface and some other, some other factors. Yeah. So basically, actually, if I can, uh, put a bit of synthesis, let's say if I summarize, tell me if I'm wrong, by the way, uh, it's actually, is not the system itself that prevents you to have a pinch flat or uh, to be, or actually that helps you to be faster or helps you to be comfortable. But basically, we need to talk about how the system is made. And if you go, we want to go a bit deep on that, is which one is your tire? So it doesn't depend itself in the system alone, but which one is the tire? Also because, if I can add just a two cents and then uh, we'll let you comment on that, um, I truly believe that in the last couple of years, maybe four years, 
the wheel set, sorry, the tires themselves, they became way more durable and way more resistant to flats. Because I truly believe that with both clinchers or tubeless, if you are getting something really sharp, you're getting a tire, you are getting a flat anyways, and then you have to put a tube inside anyways. The point is that with the new systems of tires, actually is way more difficult, apart if it's completely aged, let's put it in this way, is way more difficult to have a little puncture that will completely leave you on the side of the road to change your flat. So I think that is really the technology that changed, not only the systems. What do you think? I agree. I think it's it's some of both. Um, to your first point, yes, the the I think it's very tempting for us to say, you know, tubeless is this, right? Or clinchers are that. And in I think I I hear this reflected back to me a lot when I talk to to consumers and even athletes. Um, it, it's very much the same thing that happened with carbon bikes, right? Oh, carbon bikes are so much more comfortable and so much stiffer. And it's like it that's just not true. <laughs> right? Absolutely it's, agree. It, what is the bike? What is the frame? What is the design? Right. I mean, it, 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 there's so much more nuance there, and I think that we're in the we're at a place now where the conversation is shifting from tubeless is this, right? Whatever we want it to be, to this this wheel and tire system is this. Um, you know, we're, we need to find that that nuance. You know, so if you say, oh, I'm, I'm running this tire on that wheel at this event, and you could say, oh yeah, that's perfect. That's so good, <laughs> and um, you know, but it, it's not. It, it, yes, and and the same thing for clinchers and, and inner tubes. You know, if I'm riding this this clincher tire with this inner tube at that event, you could also say, oh, that's a perfect choice, or I might say, oh, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so it's about it's about the nuance more than the the label. Um, there, the the second half of that I think is interesting. Yes, the technologies are getting much better, but I think one of the things that is reducing the number of flats that I think people are seeing in general is this lower pressure, lower casing tension. Um, you know, I do, uh, I think in one of our marginal gains videos, uh, we, we sort of, uh, make the analogy. I, I have a mop, you know, like the, the mop with the stringy, <laughs> the stringy fibers that hang down. And, you know, if you take the mop head, with all of those fibers hanging down and you take a super sharp knife and you try to cut those fibers, they just move, right? You can't do it. So how do you cut the fibers, right? You, you pull tension in them and, and the more tension is in them, the easier they are to cut. And essentially that's what's happening with this casing tension side of the equation with our tires that as we're coming down to these more appropriate, um, air pressures, those casing tensions are lower. And so for a given sharp object that you might be running over, um, it, it's just that much easier for the, the fibers in the tire to just get out of the way, <laughs> right? They're, they're not as taut as they were uh, when we were all running eight bar and 23 millimeter tires. Uh, and, and so that's one piece of that equation. And then yes, the, definitely these like silica-based rubbers and some of these other additives, the graphene and nanoparticles. And um, there's some interesting clay nanoparticles that people are using. Um, those are all really allowing us to use thinner rubber as we chase efficiency uh, while 
either maintaining or improving the durability and the the puncture resistance of the tires. So it's a it's a really a beautiful march of technology. Absolutely. Uh, when you look at it kind of at that micro level. Yeah. But if I say on tubeless you can uh put less pressure in your tires than with clinchers. Do you think that this is a hundred percent correct statement or uh also there we can find some nuances? Uh it's it's a correct statement if you're talking about pinch flats right because there's nothing to, there's no tube to pinch flat um but i would say it's still a pretty nuanced um statement from all of the other aspects you know it, it's not saying uh that that's the right pressure right or that you necessarily want to run it again it's what's the size what's the terrain um you know, and then of course with with tubeless, we do still have the issues of uh, tire burping, right? Where you you can side load it enough uh, to let a little bit of air escape, and so that's you know that's an interesting area where, you know, I think maybe surprisingly, for as much as tubeless is viewed as the the system that's going to allow us to run these very low tire pressures, you look at the one discipline of our sport where you run the lowest tire pressures. <laughs> Um, we're lowest relative to the tire size, and we're still struggling mightily with tubeless because of this tire burping issue. Um, you know, and so, yeah, I, I think, I think there's still a lot of nuance, uh, in all these topics to, to work through. Okay. Okay. That's, that's super perfect. I have actually, I don't know how to define it to go that into that. I remember that I had a friend of mine, his name is Andrea and some, from time to time he's also uh, guesting this podcast. And he was telling me that once upon a time, uh, Mavic uh, put together a system that was pretty similar to the tubeless that is on cars. So it's this system that doesn't need to uh, to have latex, no, it's not latex, but actually the sealant inside and everything like this. But then at a certain point went out of business. Do you Can you tell me something about that? Why is not there a system where you don't need to have the tape around the rim and then you don't need to have the, um, the sealant inside the... Everything that would make the thing a bit more simple. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that was called UST. UST, and, absolutely. Thank you. And that was Mavic partnered with Hutchinson mm. um, and was quite an interesting system, really ahead of its time in a lot of ways, but they made a couple of critical mistakes. You know, one, they, I think they did the bicycle industry thing of making it exclusive to them and patenting every possible way that you could achieve the system. And so it really locked everyone else out. And then I think they also made the mistake of being a little bit premature with that technology relative to the tire manufacturing technology, because the tires were very heavy. Okay. Um, you know, I remember some of those when they came out, I mean, you would look and, it, you know, they were like a, a 26 by, uh, you know, two inch mountain bike tire was like 650 grams or something. I mean, they were, they were way heavier than a tire plus a tube. And then the rims were in a lot of cases heavier because they had a solid outer wall. And then you had to have some technology for attaching the spokes. Right. And so, um, my experience very early with UST in the nineties was doing a 24 hour, um, mountain bike race with some friends and everybody started out on 
UST wheels and we we thought they were so cool. And by the end of the 24 hours, I think every one of us had at least one inner tube in one of the wheels because we had flatted for some reason. And, and, you know, I remember at the end of that, picking up my front wheel, which, you know, is a 600 plus gram tire now with like a 180 gram or something inner tube in it and thinking like, oh my God, you know, this is just, this is ridiculous. It's, it's just, it's too much. It's too heavy. Um, and then of course, very quickly they pushed into, uh, pro racing and said, oh, the 50, I remember the big claim for the road tires was 15% lower rolling resistance. Um, which I think was absolutely true as long as you never tested those tires for rolling resistance. Okay. <laughs> because as soon as you tested them, they were terrible. Okay. Um, and so you just, it was all just too premature. Um, you know, I, so gosh, that, I mean, this was, I think 20 years ago that, that this all happened. Um, even 10 years ago, I remember, you know, right after SRAM bought Zip and we were developing mountain bike wheels for them and, and really the push of thinking there's got to be a better solution. Oh, all of the ideas to make this work without tape, those are all patented. Um, okay, so we can't do any of that, right? Oh, and and then you get into the thing of um, of the standards, right? There's no, none of the tubeless was governed by ISO or ETRTO, which are the two, the governing bodies behind uh, standards. And so before you knew it, you had, you know, stands is making rims that are completely in violation of ISO, but they work, right? And they work really well. Um, but they're now, they have patents on that stuff. Okay, well, so you can't really make tires that work with the stands standard because no one else can make that right so so you and this is still the the dance that we're trying to extract ourselves from as an industry you know nobody can really play perfectly well with everyone else because everyone else is playing some sort of protective game with their technology to try to prevent someone else from coming in so you know the wheel manufacturers feel screwed that the, there's so much different between the tires and there's no real standards amongst the tires for bead shape and you know we're just now pushing through i mean 10 years after we started some uh things on like uh diameter controls and some of these other technical nuances but there's still no no bead shape or bead technology uh locked into iso right well that's frustrating if you're a wheel manufacturer well if you flip that on its head and you talk to the tire manufacturers they say oh why can't the wheel manufacturers all make beads that are similar or tire wells that are similar oh well because there's 37 patents on you know mm. it's you think of what our industry has done with a bottom bracket quote unquote i'm doing air quotes here standards right Absolutely. you know we, we have like 165 bottom bracket standards <laughs> yes um that that is exactly what's happened in wheels. It's just happened without any name being associated with it, right? Every single company is completely doing their own thing. Um, and, and that's where I think the, the advantage in this moment is really going towards the companies that are doing it together. You know, I think, um, you know, I, uh, Vittoria making tires that matches their wheels, right? I, I think one of the really impressive wheel sets that's come out in the last year is this giant Kadex. They brought a very affordable wheel and tire to market that's just perfectly matched. And I got to say, you snap the tire on and you hit it with a floor pump and it just 
pops. I mean, it just works. Wow. Right. And so I think we've, we've got a vision there of what's possible, but it's just going to take time. You know, I, I haven't tried, I know zip just launched a new wheel tire combo. Um, the, this new 303, and I can't remember what they call it, the Tangente 40 or something, but, um, with the claim that that it's perfectly matched, it seats with a floor pump. I mean, we know this is possible. Um, but even you think of the complexity there, okay, that's one wheel and one tire in their lineup, but the entire rest of the lineup doesn't have that, that wheel geometry yet, right? It'll take three or four years for them to, you know, cause you, you have to retool every single wheel in the line. And then of course you have to assume in that time period that the industry isn't going to go in some other direction, right? Or someone comes up with some new tire technology that changes everything. And so, you know, it's just, a, it's kind of back to that long, slow march. You know, I, I, I just have to hope that we're making more good decisions than bad ones. And I think if, if that's true, what you'll see with the technology, because we see this in every technology, is that um, if enough good decisions are made, technologically, everyone starts to converge on the same answer, right? That's why all the Formula One cars end up looking the same. You know, there's just like, you you can only get so creative and then, you know, <laughs> physics bend you back in the direction of like what the fastest cars look like. Um, th- that's what's going to happen here, but it it's likely another, I don't know, five years. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, I really understand the explanation and actually I'm also really looking forward and really starting seeing the vision of getting tires and wheel set that work good together. And you were mentioning the Zip 303 and that are also less pricey that were supposed to be before, because just by building up the perfect system, then you can get the best performances there without continuing and going on into the the shape of it or uh the tire uh, sorry the wheel said uh, the wheel uh, width and everything like that just go in the direction of two systems that work good together and then in this case you can also make something a bit more affordable and uh, and that's interesting that's really great um i have another question and is about actually latex tube so uh, we talked about that, and uh, you said that actually probably this one is the system or one of the systems that it depends on the combination, of course, and the nuances or whatever, but it's really, really the fastest one, right? It's, yes, the fastest one or the most effective mm-hmm. one. Uh, we said that. But I have two problems with uh, latex tubes. One, I'm scared that they are too fragile, so something that I can get more pinch flat or whatever, even just flats, normal. And the second thing is that I used twice, uh, I'm talking about, I was living in Berlin. It was 2016, five years ago. Um, These latex tubes that were not the Silka ones. I'm going to tell you why I'm precising that, not because you are here, but just because it was like this. And I had to put a valve extension. So all the problem that was there. So put the tape around, put it in and blah, blah, blah. (coughs) The both of them, failed from that day i actually remember that before i bought two silica tubes in latex i have them still here in my closet i still didn't use it because i have to put another extension and i'm scared that it will fail so what do you tell what can you tell me about that are the first question is are they super fragile and the second one is it's really 
as really to be so complicated to put an extension on the valve. Can I think that actually now put something like a valve that is a bit taller than before because now I have only the small one. I have uh, uh, something like a width of the of the wheel that is pretty tall and so it doesn't get inside. But let's talk about that. Extensions yep. and the consistency of that. Yeah. Yeah. So starting with extensions, you know, there's there's two types. Um, there's removable valve core extensions, right? For the the valves that have the core that comes out and and the new extension goes in, and that has a little O-ring seal. Um, those generally work pretty well. Uh, I think we, you know, I think we make the best ones, but and we do it by just controlling the tolerances super tight, and we use a high quality rubber in the seal and so on and so on. Um, you know, I, uh, I can't say I've never heard of one not work, but I don't think I've ever heard of one of our valve extensions not working, uh, for removable core. Okay. The other type though, and a lot of the latex tubes on the market use the, and I don't understand this, but they use the less expensive valve, uh, design, which is what we call fixed core. Right, and that's where the core doesn't come out. And with that, you have to use the extension that goes over the core. Um, and with that, now you have to put like a little Teflon tape or a little O-ring. Um, we we actually made these for a while, um, and then finally just stopped making them because they're no matter how good you make them, there's still just too many ways to have problems. The the biggest one though being the the, the rules, the standards for the valves are pretty loose. Like from an engineering perspective, they're, it's what I would say, they're wide open. I mean, they're, they're made in a way with, and they're tolerance in a way that is really all about making valves cheaply. And so, you know, one manufacturer might is making the one thing and the, you know, the manufacturer down the street is making a, uh, looks like the same valve, but it's completely a different size. <laughs> Okay. Yes. 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 <laughs> right. The thread pitches. Right. I mean, it's just there's very poor control on those, and so it totally depends. This is one of the reasons we got out of the fixed core um, extension businesses. You know, you couldn't, we couldn't tighten our tolerances on that part because the mating part was all over the place. Uh, it's terribly frustrating for for the companies. It's terribly frustrating for the users. The removable cores are a little bit tighter and. Fortunately, they have a um, they have a thread and then a bore that is actually toleranced reasonably under that thread that you can use to seal with the little rubber seal, um, and that's how we can make that one essentially like a hundred percent seal. So we only use removable cores in all of our stuff, and we only sell removable core valve extensions. So um, nobody likes valve extensions; they're a big pain in the butt. Uh, no matter which one you're using, but if you buy quality uh, extenders and tubes, you're, I would say, almost guaranteed to not have have problems with removable core. Uh, if okay, I can so just go, if I can actually just put something like a little note on that, you have to consider, and then we can continue with your answer. Uh, you have still to consider that actually, actually, I'm the worst mechanic ever. So. It was <laughs> so that's something that I have stitches in my hand because I was trying to take out a pedal and actually hammered my um crank 
and that's what happened here <laughs> i have another piece here that is another problem of myself trying to change a wheel and i made a mess so i have stitches all around for that but i can <laughs> i can tell you that it was really painful and i was using one of those without the removable core so probably it was something like a combination but by about my clumsiness as mechanic and also on the other side about the system that was not completely in place so i have to put a blame on myself for sure <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a strange, you know, I, I'm i not sure why so many of the brands of latex tubes came with the fixed cores. Um, my only thought there is, you know, I think sometimes companies get very caught up in the price point of things and they worry, you know, latex is a lot more expensive than other rubbers. And it's a lot harder to work with. And I think there's, you know, people are maybe trying to balance, you know, oh, the, the, the tube is twice as expensive, but if we use a less expensive valve core, we don't have to price it as high. You know, it, but they're definitely tires, tubes are definitely things where you get your money, you get what you pay for. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You know, the, the good stuff truly is better. You know, there's a lot of times in, in cycling and, and life where that isn't true, but I can say without a doubt, you are generally almost 100% getting what you pay for in these categories because it's all about raw material cost in manufacture. I mean, it, they're, you know, it's pretty straightforward, right? There's not a lot of sexiness or branding or, you know, like, Ooh, that tire's got a really awesome paint job. You know, like, like, no, it's, it's a tire, right? You're, you're paying for the materials. Um, so past that, uh, uh, latex tubes generally are more durable than butyl tubes in every single way, except for heat. Uh, and that is okay. the one that the, Temperature uh, is the one thing that can cause problems with latex tubes um, over butyl in that latex tubes, uh, they begin to soften and begin to weaken at about 50 degrees Celsius below where butyl uh, begins to have the same problems. And so, you know, if, if you're, you know, riding in the Alps with rim brakes on very light wheels with latex tubes, um, you know, that that's a weakness. That's something to be, to be very considerate of. Uh, and of course, as wheels have gotten lighter, right, they get hotter for the same braking input, um, because there's just less mass to sink the heat. So that's the one spot where they're weaker, but in, in terms of like pinch flat, puncture flat, um, the latex is actually, a, it, it tests better both in the laboratory and in the real world, um, than butyl, but just because it's so much more resilient. You know, we think it's like the latex tubes are, are like the young tree, right? It can bend and flex in the wind, <laughs> um, but it doesn't break. And and the butyl is a much um, uh, much less resilient material that that can actually break uh, quite a bit easier, and that's accentuated uh, in in very cold temperatures. So you're actually better off with the latex. Uh, cold to let's say everything other short of hot mountain descending uh and rim brakes is your better option yes and rim brakes okay yeah. but from a from a, a hysteresis perspective and a speed perspective i mean the latex is vastly superior in terms of efficiency and you will feel it in the ride quality um, because it's, it's much faster to respond. And so, you know, we, we talk in terms of stiffness, you know, uh, um, the stiffness of your frame or your seat post, that's what we would think of as a static stiffness, right? You sit on your seat post, it deflects a millimeter and we say, oh, it's, you know, this is the stiffness of the post, right? Well, 
tires uh, are subject to something that's called or known as dynamic stiffness. And dynamic stiffness is interesting because you think of um, a good example on a mountain bike, you know, if you've ever experienced what they call packing of a suspension fork, right? Where you, you maybe you hit washboard and the fork gets compa- compressed by the first bit of washboard. And before it can extend, it gets hit again. Yeah. Right. And so it actually begins to just like kind of sag it, it, to become ever more compressed because it's getting hit bump after bump. Well, your tires can be subject to a similar thing. And, and this is where, you know, if I give you a crappy tire with a butyl tube and a nice tire with a latex tube, and we put them in a simple test machine where we put a weight on them, they deflect the same. Okay. Right. But when you run over that washboardy material, right, or rough road or cobbles, the latex and uh, the high quality, the supple, we would say, tire um, can actually respond, right? It's, ba- it's springing back much quicker to take that next impact, whereas the crappy tire and inner tube isn't springing back. And you're now basically, you know, it's like hitting the punching bag, right? You've, you've hit it, it's compressed, and now you're just hitting it again as it's still compressed. And the spring rate all of a sudden is much higher now in that system. Um, and that's one of the, the reasons why the, the tire pressure and the, the tire quality uh, is such a huge factor on the ride quality of the bicycle is because it's, it's so much more subject to this dynamic stiffness piece of the equation and not just the static uh, stiffness piece. Yeah, uh, that's really, really interesting. And I love actually that you are working with a lot of pro team. And we have been talking for the whole episode about tubeless and tubes. What about tubulars? Is this technology completely dead? Or do you think that, because maybe just, I actually what I see around before, the thing that I was listening for most of the time, you can run uh, tubulars because you can put rest pressure on that. It's a bit more uh, comfortable and still the rolling rolling resistance is really good. And if you have a flat, you can actually ride a bit more into that without crashing the rim. But at this level of technology, what about tubulars? Oh, I... Sadly, I don't think tubulars will be with us that much longer. Um, but they're classy. They are super classy. They are. Yeah, they are. No, I, <laughs> I, I still, I, I will say one of the things keeping tubulars around, but well, there's a couple, it, a couple factors in the Pro Tour, but um, people are generally surprised to hear it. But, you know, if I visit a service course of a team, the couple, three, four of us, we can knock out a hundred tubular gluings so much faster than we can knock out a hundred tubeless setups. Okay. <laughs> I mean, tubulars at, at that level of mechanic, the, the tubular is just a faster, easier process uh, than tubeless is today. Um, you know, I think it, it feels the opposite of that for the home mechanic. You think, Oh, I've got to get the setup and the glue and it's day. It takes forever. Th- that is not how it's done at the pro level. Okay. Um, we we can do it very quickly. So the mechanics, pretty much all of them I know are still kind of preferring tubulars and where we've we've moved to tubeless uh, or, or to clinchers. Um, I would say there's some lamenting going on, you know, the missing of the old days. Um, the other one is the ability to ride flat. And I think these 
like expanding liners that we talked about earlier, that's going to change this piece of the equation. Um, you know, because the, the, it really was true. The, the flat clincher, you know, the, the nightmare scenario, right. was a downhill in the Alps front puncture, you know, a, a sudden total loss of air. That, that is not a safe situation. No. Uh, and one that it's kind of the nightmare scenario that everybody from the riders to the directors, to the sponsors worried about, um, you know, that situation, it, it's not good on a tubular, but it's much, much safer. Um, these liners are interesting in that, you know, we've actually had with, a with one of the teams that we, we work with, um, we've had three or four punctures so far this season where riders finished, not even knowing they had a puncture. Wow. Uh, but because the liner kind of came up and said, Oh, I just, I thought I was losing pressure, you know, or, um, it felt low, but it, it, they didn't even realize it was flat. Um, as that technology comes forward, I think that's ultimately going to be the thing that probably finally kills off tubulars. But the thing that could keep it alive truly is if the UCI agrees to, to finally move the weight limit. You know, we we have a lot of teams today who are still um, kind of struggling to get to the six point eight kilo range. Um, a lot of them are comfortably there, but some of them are can't quite get there. If the UCI were to come in and say, "Oh, it's six, um, I, I think you would see tubulars popping back up, at least for the mountain stages everywhere, because you know it. it we're just we're not we're not going to be beating tubular weights anytime soon with tubeless um, or clinchers. Okay. But yeah, but I, but I would say, you know, at, at the moment, I mean, the, the top teams with the best equipment, you know, they're, they're pretty comfortably at, they can pretty comfortably hit 6.8 um, generally with, with a uh, tubeless setup. Um, so, you know, is, is there really an advantage to, you know, you know I mean, I, I know a lot of the teams we work with, you know, we make these little tungsten slugs that we put in the bottom brackets to oh. get to the weight limit Okay. Uh, in some cases. And I, and I think that's where, you know, as you've seen disc breaks become more pervasive. I mean, you, you can tell who, who can and can't hit the weight limit by looking at who's on the disc breaks right now. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the teams on disc, yeah, they, they're, they're there. No problem. Right. The teams on the rim break, they're, they're pulling out all the stops. Um, but as, as again, as the slow march of technology happens, you know, we're, we're not, but a couple of years from, I think everybody being there. Um, and I think with that, you'll see the tubulars probably leave and not come back. Okay. 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 Look, Josh, I had a lot of other topics that I want to touch base with you, but I think that we actually, we covered perfectly in one hour and 20 minutes, the tires parts and the wheels parts so probably i will stick on that i will actually probably steal from you a promise that next time you are gonna come over here and we can have another episode and then we can talk about another couple of topics that is actually uh everything related to change uh, to chains sorry uh, lubing and um, saddlebags and everything like this so let's keep <laughs> these topics from another episode if you're okay with that because i would yeah, love absolutely. actually to finish these talk that was super interesting and thanks a lot for that uh, by asking you the last um sharp question that is you actually build all the narrative at the moment i would say of the silka content production around the marginal gains right uh, is the name of the podcast there are a lot of articles talking about that and yeah that's what it is but 
if we have to talk about which one are the massive gains. So if really you want to go out and talk with somebody in a pro team, we just already talked about weight at the moment, but uh, also something else. So uh, in the pro team or just to a normal cyclist that has in mind that wants to push up his levels because he wants to be or she wants to be super competitive in their local crit or in the group ride or whatever. We know which one are the marginal gains. Checking out everything that we talked about, rolling resistance and blah, blah, blah. Which one on the other side is, okay, if you want to change one thing, change that and then you will really turn the page and you're going to be way more comfortable and faster on your bike. I'd say it dep depends on if, if you're racing or just doing distance riding. Um, but really, once once you get your tires and your tire pressure sorted, I mean, that's huge. That's that's so many watts of savings, whether you're racing, whether, I mean, and, and it's, let's be honest, it's a comfort thing. It's an enjoyment thing. You know, I like the, the perfectly tuned, perfectly set up bike with the perfect tires and tire pressure. That's just glorious, right? That That is just good stuff. Um, if you're racing, road racing it, it or triathlon it's aerodynamics uh is is the biggest piece of this right and aerodynamics gets super complicated um in a million things but you know we have this non-linearity right where the um the, the power to overcome aerodynamic drag is growing at the cube of your velocity right yes. so you're you're most other things are, are are relatively linear this is at the cube that that's a big one uh but if you're not super fast racing then it really is that the the next step is friction right you're looking at uh and for me not racing um and that's part of how we fell into this world of chain lubricants and 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 chasing the chain friction down um it, in a lot of ways just started out of trying to make the bike completely silent it's true <laughs> like like i just want my bike to be silent um and of course, you know, then we, once I fall down the rabbit hole of a technology, you know, I, I tend to emerge three years later with, with products that we want to make. Um, but yeah, you, you know, of course I, I want you to go buy Silka chain lube cause it's the best. Uh, and it's actually been independently tested now to be the best, um, in all the categories that we're in, which is pretty exciting for me, but, but without even trying to sell you something, I mean, just for the average rider, just cleaning your bike cleaning your drivetrain can be six to 10 watts of savings. Um, and it's going to extend the life of the drivetrain, right? So you're, you're going to be replacing chains or, or cassettes or, you know, those components less frequently. Um, I think that's, that's one thing that people just don't think about And You know, I, they're buying this piece and that piece and oh, and I want this carbon thing because it's going to improve comfort. And, you know, we, we've bought into so many of these myths, um, about our sport and about our equipment. And some of these things are just, you know, get the right tire pressure and clean, clean and lubricate your drivetrain. And boom, right there is probably more comfort and speed than you can almost buy at any cost in any other thing that you're going to upgrade on that bicycle. Okay. So I, I, I think I would go, you know, cause I, not to go sideways, but you know, it's the, you know, oh, I'm going to, I, I want to buy this carbon seat post. Like, okay, great. But that it's probably similar in stiffness and comfort to the seat post it's replacing. There's no benefit. Like there's no speed there. Right. So buy it because you want it and it makes you feel good to have it. And you like the way it looks, but you know, that's one of those components I, I look at and, and 
you know, you go show up on the group rides. Oh, I just bought this new seat post. Like, awesome. Looks great. But, but you need to know that's what you're buying it for, right? <laughs> you know, if you're going to buy a stem, right, buy it for fit, not for stiffness, because it, I don't know. It, outside of the top level of pro racing, these things make no difference uh, to anything. But, you know, for goodness sakes, if you're willing to spend $200 on that carbon stem, you know, you should be willing to take the 10 minutes every other week or something to just clean your drivetrain. And that you will find more speed there than truly in, in pretty much any other thing you can buy. Yeah. Uh, I actually don't want to make the advertisement here, but am I wrong or you're doing also something like wipes or whatever that you can clean your chain with or whatever? There are some Silka products like these wipes or I'm getting it completely incorrectly. Yeah. Yeah. No. So we, we have. Yeah. And it's also, that's what I mean. It's also easy. You don't need actually to put the bicycle in the shower, for example. C correct. Yeah. We, we're trying to make it easy. We're trying to bring, uh, bring easier cleaning and then bring better lubricants um, to the market. And that's one I will plug zero friction cycling in Australia. Uh, Google them zero friction cycling. Um, but it's the world's only independent test laboratory for uh, lubricants and chains. And they will, can tell you which chain lasts the longest, which lubricant is the fastest and which one reduces drivetrain wear. I mean, he's got some amazing testing uh, uh, in there. And, and of course, you know, I'm telling you to, go there because all of the Silco products are at the very top of the list in all the categories. Um, and, and it's just, you know, we, quite frankly, we found some technology in Formula One racing um, that we brought into cycling. You know, I didn't invent it. I just knew where to find the research papers and, and <laughs> companies and, and engineers who were much smarter than me to kind of lift this thing up and drop it into cycling. Um, but it, it is, you can find uh, some significant wattage savings increase in drivetrain life um you know speed right wherever there's wattage savings you can also find speed and then maybe most importantly for those of us who aren't racing very quiet drivetrains <laughs> <laughs> that's super great as i was saying i will actually uh ask you also later maybe we can start the conversation because it's, it's another thing that is super fascinating i actually mentioned my friend andrea before andrea before because he's the one especially for my gravel bike telling me all the time Please, man, stop cleaning your frame to make it sparkling, but start cleaning your drivetrain because it looks <laughs> yes. horrible and you are really breaking everything in this way. So I'm kind of interested. I always said in mind also the conversation about waxing the chain or lubing the chain and all this kind of thing. Let's keep it for another episode. Would you be in? Ah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's really great. <laughs> Josh. Thanks a lot for this lovely conversation today. It was really helpful. And uh, I truly believe that actually we can, I, at least for now myself, because I'm the only one listening to you now, but in the future, somebody else will listen to you. But for me, it was really, uh, I got a lot of information. It was really, it was really enriching. So now I jump out from the conversation, knowing a bit more. First of all, I don't need to be scared about extensions if they're made in the right way and probably also another couple of things that I need to take care of when I'm pumping my bike or I'm pumping the tires on my bike. Thanks a lot for it. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yes, I will talk to you soon. <laughs> Cheers. So everybody, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to have Josh again on the Broom Wagon to talk about 
chains and loops and uh, drive trains, maintenance, just give me a shout. You know my channel, hello, calamaro.cc at calamaro.cc or on Instagram, calamaro.cc or um, how is it? Broomwagon Club, yes, Broomwagon Club. Just let me know, and but for sure, I'm gonna make another episode because this one was super cool, and uh, I want to get a bit more of knowledge about all these things, especially because I have a couple of questions on what to put in your saddlebag while you are riding all the spares and things that you need to carry. But that's another story. So thanks a lot, Josh, for being part of this episode. I really, really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And if you liked it, uh, people, just remember to share it with all your network as well as rate, comment, review, do whatever you want on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, wherever you are listening to this room. Wagon. Thanks, Komoot, for supporting this uh, fourth season of The Broom Wagon. And I want actually to go into something that I think I didn't talk about um, in the last month, because actually in March, Komoot came out with a new um, mapping system, visual in the mapping system, that is so interesting because they actually insert inside some tools and specifics that are just amazing because for example now with the new uh, maps visual of the maps you can see national parks way easier for example now i am planning the holy wicked quick my friends do you really want to know where we are going i'm not gonna tell you yes i can yes i cannot but anyways it's gonna be in italy and there is an amazing national park where we are going and i was planning our routes there and i saw that actually we are gonna ride inside of this amazing national park with an amazing mountains uh, yeah mountains that are there and uh yes i'm just astonished you will see more you will see more no gravel there in that case so probably i can bring my gravel bike i will see but yeah now the natural parks and national parks are way more similar as uh, similar sorry visible and uh the color are sharper and then you can really understand where you're riding there and that's super amazing so you can really plan your rides inside of uh, natural parks and take the most advantage as you can out there and then way more visible are as well and that's something that they need to take care of a bit more especially here in switzerland in switzerland all the private forbidden and closed roads and paths and trails and uh, they are way more visible. There is actually the warning sign there. And uh, in this way, you can figure it out a bit more now to, um, let's say, break the rules and actually uh, go into some danger there. But that's something really, really visible and pretty cool. And then also cycling paths are easier to spot. And also there, if you are going out with your family, with kids, uh, you know where to stay safe on the bike in these amazing tracks and uh, little bicycle lanes. And then you can plan a bit better on smaller roads. It's everything really better and more visible with checking all the things that are characteristic of our roads and also um, railways are really way more visible and another cool thing when you're traveling abroad when you're traveling around and maybe the alphabet is not the same in the new visuals of the maps you can also uh, see the names of the cities also with your own alphabet because they are um, displayed in multi-languages 
all of that is just to improve the user experience of people uh, that are using Komoot. And this is really the mission of the Komoot people. That's why you're, we are pretty similar and we are pretty happy of working together because that's the mission of Komoot. Let people be outside and discover and explore. And that's super great. These are my last words for today. This episode, I can understand it was super long and probably tiring a bit for your ears, but I read, I would really appreciate your feedback and your happiness. And till next week, I would say enjoy the sunny weather when it will arrive. But the passes are starting to be open here in Switzerland, so enjoy them. <laughs>